This is the Scottish Football Citizen, bringing you the best of Scottish football from the past. I'm Andy Kerr, and this week I'm joined by Lindsay Hamilton and Jim Orr as we prepare for Scotland's upcoming games at Euro 2020 by revisiting Euro 96. It was a memorable summer when Craig Brown took the Tartan Army to England to compete on Europe's biggest stage. And rather thankfully for Scotland, football didn't come home. Before we get started with this week's podcast, we have a weekly dose of trivia for you. Which player was the first to win 50 caps for the Scotland men's national team? We'll give you the answer at the end of the podcast. The summer of 1994 was a disappointing one for British football fans as none of the home nations had managed to qualify for the World Cup in the USA that year. Everyone in Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland had to make do with watching Jack Charlton's Republic of Ireland team on TV. The Irish were able to muster up more of the underdog spirit that had taken them far in the 1990 World Cup as they came out 1-0 winners over Italy and New Jersey thanks to an early rehouting goal and an excellent performance from Paul McGrath. Charlton's Ireland side made it to the last 16 where they were beaten 2-0 by the Netherlands. The only Scots to officially make it to the tournament were Tommy Coyne who played for the Republic of Ireland and the referee Les Mottram who supervised two games at the tournament. For England, it was a huge failure, given they had been chosen to host the upcoming European Championships. The FA sacked their manager Graham Taylor and replaced him with Terry Venables, but with qualification for the Euros secured by virtue of hosting the tournament, the English wouldn't play another competitive game for the next two years. For Scotland, it was a disappointment too, giving their success in qualifying for Euro 92 in Sweden. Scotland had been placed in a qualification group with Italy, Switzerland, Portugal, Estonia and Malta, and the top two teams would qualify for the World Cup. Given Scotland had qualified for the previous five consecutive World Cups and had also made the Euros in 1992, the pressure was on Andy Roxburgh to deliver another qualification. Things started poorly, as Scotland lost 3-1 to Switzerland in Bern and followed this result up with two 0-0 draws against Portugal and Italy. A 3-0 win over Malta thanks to an Ali McCoy's double and a Pat Nevin solo goal got Scotland their first win on the board. But this was followed by a 5-0 defeat by Portugal in Lisbon. Estonia were defeated 3-0 away and 3-1 at home before drawing 1-1 with Switzerland in Aberdeen. But Italy hammered the nail into any lingering qualification hopes with a 3-1 win over Scotland at Rome's Stadio Olimpico. While the Scots finished qualification with a 2-0 away win over Malta, it was a game that counted for nothing, as Scotland slumped to 4th place behind Italy and Switzerland, who qualified, and Portugal, who missed out by one point. Andy Roxburgh was unceremoniously sacked by the SFA for his failure to take Scotland to the States, and Craig Brown was promoted from assistant to manager. When England hosted the World Cup in 1966, Scotland had missed out on qualification due to an agonising defeat in Naples at the hands of the Italians, and they stayed at home while England went on to lift the trophy. Although Scotland got their revenge at Wembley in 1967 by defeating the world champions, the failure to qualify still rankled with many, 
and the SFA board gave Craig Brown one objective to qualify for Euro 96 at any cost. Brown told the Press and Journal in 2020, We were told when I got the job that if we didn't qualify for Euro 96, you were sacked because it's right next door. You couldn't get a European Championship as handy for the Tartan Army. The pressure on you to qualify for those events was considerable. Scotland's qualifying group contained Russia, Finland, Greece, the Faroe Islands and San Marino. The top two teams would qualify and things started well for Scotland as goals from John Collins and Duncan Shearer led them to a 2-0 victory in Helsinki. Brown's men then defeated the Faroes 5-1 at Hamden before getting a credible 1-1 draw against Russia at home. A 1-0 defeat to Greece in Athens was a slight disappointment but a goalless draw with Russia and back-to-back 2-0 wins over San Marino put the Scots back on track. It was all looking positive now, as Scotland got one back on Greece when Ali McCoy scored in a 1-0 win at Hamden, and Finland were beaten 1-0 at Hamden the following month. The final qualifier was at home to San Marino, as goals from Ian Jess, Scott Booth, Ali McCoy, Pat Nevin and a San Marino own goal saw Scotland win 5-0 to qualify in style. Finishing second in the group, Brown had met his objective and the Tartan army would be invading England in cars, trains, buses and planes in the summer of 1996. Scotland had only lost three goals over the course of the ten qualifying games, a feat they would go on to repeat when qualifying for the World Cup in France two years later. Brown's philosophy was simple, if you don't lose goals, you don't lose games. Craig Brown chose a squad of 22 players with weeks to go before the start of the tournament. It was to be a squad with plenty of experience including Jim Layton who had 74 caps, Andy Gorham who had 36 caps and Ali McCoyst who had 52 caps. While some players such as Tosh McKinley who had 4 caps and Nicky Walker who had 2 caps were included, Most players had already had their fair share of action wearing the dark blue of Scotland. Given that Scotland had played in a 3-5-2 formation in qualification where Tom Boyd, Colin Hendry and Colin Calderwood had been solid at the back, there was no reason to mess with a winning formula and all three were included in the squad. Also, gone was Andy Roxburgh's unusual method of giving the outfield players squad numbers based on the amount of caps they had and it was back to more conventional numbering. Ali McCoy would no longer confuse people being at number 5 instead of his regular number 9. To prepare for the tournament, Brown took his squad over to the USA, echoing his and Andy Roxburgh's pre-tournament training from Euro 92 in Sweden. Unlike England's antics in the Far East which attracted all sorts of media attention for all the wrong reasons, Brown had insisted that the squad were to be on their best behaviour while the players were out and about. The squad getting to go to a Rod Stewart concert and going on stage to sing with him was about as wild as it got for the Scots. Brown said on realising that they were flying back to London from New York, I told every one of the players that they had to go back wearing the blazer. There would be no alcohol at all. I have never seen as many press waiting for a drunken Scottish team to come off the flight. Ali McCoy came up to me and said, I can see the headline now. 
Scots in sober sensation. Sure enough, the Scots' arrival in London passed without any incident and very little tabloid intrigue compared to Terry Venable's England squad. When the groups were drawn for the tournament, there was huge interest in the UK as Scotland were drawn in Group A with Switzerland, the Netherlands and, you guessed it, England. It was a reasonably tough group given England would be the favourites being at home, plus the Netherlands had beaten Scotland at the last Euros and Goose Hiddink's team had a talented crop of world-class young players. Switzerland would be no pushovers either, with their Portuguese manager Artur Jorge at the helm after a certain Roy Hodgson took the Swiss through qualification. Scotland were due to play two games at Villa Park in Birmingham and had a huge game in between those two games at Wembley to take on the old enemy. The Scotland players who plied their trade in the Scottish Premier Division flew down to Birmingham Airport where they were met by the Anglos and went on to the luxury hotel near Shakespeare's birthplace at Stratford-upon-Avon. The bookmakers didn't think that Scotland would be in their fancy digs for all that long though, with odds of 80-1 to 1 being offered on them winning the Euros. This may have been due to Scotland losing the last three friendly games before the tournament started, but Gary McAllister and Ali McCoyst were confident as they spoke to the media ahead of the opening game against the Dutch at Villa Park. Craig Brown echoed this by saying, I think that many Scots people will be putting a few pounds on us, when he spoke to Des Lynham. On the 10th of June 1996, Scotland prepared to open the tournament against the Netherlands, two days after the opening game where England and Switzerland played out a 1-1 draw at Wembley. The Scotland team that Craig Brown chose to send out at Villa Park was a 4-3-3 with the following players. Andy Gorham, Stuart McKimmy, Colin Calderwood, Colin Hendry, Tom Boyd, Stuart McCall, Gary McAllister, John Collins, Gordon Jury, Kevin Gallagher and Scott Booth. The Netherlands had some serious talent in their team, including Edwin van der Sar, Ronald de Boer, Clarence Seedorf, Edgar Davids, Dennis Bergkamp and Jordi Cruyff, son of Johan Cruyff. They also had players such as Patrick Kluivert and Philip Koku on the bench, so it was clear that the Dutch were no pushovers. Despite this and the fact the Dutch were one of the potential favourites for the Euros, they were no longer at their peak as they had been in 1988 and 1992. The Dutch fans were confident too, with one supporter who was interviewed by the Associated Press claiming, the Scots are saving themselves for England, no problem for us. At 4.30pm, Leif Sundell, the Swedish referee, blew his whistle and Scotland's tournament had started. If Scotland hadn't realised how tough a task it would be to deal with the Dutch attack, they knew all about it after the opening minutes of the game. Richard Vitschke was able to speed down his left wing and cross a ball in perfectly to Gaston Taumant, who shot powerfully at goal. Andy Gorham was the hero for Scotland, as he was able to block what looked like a certain goal for the Dutch. The Netherlands tried to follow this up with another shot on goal, 
but the shot was well over the top of Gorham's crossbar and into the whole tent. Not long afterwards, a Dutch corner was whipped in and Dennis Bergkamp took a shot which ricocheted off a couple of defenders before being cleared away to safety. It looked ominous for Scotland given the speed and willingness to attack that the Dutch showed. Things settled down slightly after the first few frantic opening minutes and Scotland won a free kick 20 yards from goal, close to the edge of the Dutch box. Stuart McCall, Gary McAllister and Ali McCoy stood over the ball as the orange defence got into position. Gary McAllister made the run and shot over the defensive wall. For a split second, it looked as if McAllister's shot was going to be inch perfect as it headed towards the top left corner of the net. Edwin van der Sar was following the ball perfectly, however, and was able to tip the ball away to safety. It was a big chance to make a mark on the game, and everyone of a Scottish persuasion would be hoping that it wouldn't be the only chance to lay a glove on the Dutch. The Scots weren't the only ones hoping that they could make their set pieces count, as four minutes later, the Dutch won a corner. The ball was played across Gorham's six-yard box and headed back into the middle of the 18-yard box where Dennis Bergkamp was waiting to receive the ball. Seeing his chance, he went for goal and it was only a double deflection, firstly off Stuart McCall and then Andy Gorham, that stopped the ball going into the net. As the teams went in at half-time, Craig Brown was the happier of the two managers. Despite the Dutch dominance, the Scotland defence had remained firm, and the longer the game stayed level, the more the Dutch would panic. Brown replaced Scott Booth with John Spencer at the start of the second half, hoping to get forward more. As the second half got underway, the Dutch started off well again, and in the 53rd minute, Edgar David sent in a cross to Clarence Seedorf in the middle of Scotland's box. The Scottish defence missed the ball completely and Seedorf had the freedom of Villa Park to aim for goal with his head. He headed downwards in the hope of beating Andy Gorham, which he did, but his aim was poor and the ball ended up bouncing over the bar. Another warning from the Dutch attack, but wouldn't he be left to rue their chances? Kevin Gallagher came off for Scotland and was replaced by Billy McKinley in the 56th minute, and the Dutch replaced Gaston Taumint with Patrick Cloyvert to freshen up their attack. As the clock kept ticking, it remained goalless, and Group A looked like it could be just as open as it was before any of the games had kicked off. The Netherlands won a corner with just under 10 minutes to go, which was taken by Seedorf, and it found a Dutch head after looping across just about everyone on the field. The header looked to be going in, and Andy Gorham was beaten, but Colin Hendry was able to clear off the line. The Scots were starting to believe now, but could they hold on just a bit longer? Minutes later, the Dutch would test the Scottish defence yet again. Clarence Seedorf received a pass on the left side and took a shot at Gorham's goal only for the ball to be deflected over the crossbar. Time really was of the essence now, and Craig Brown used the opportunity to wind the clock down by replacing Stuart McKimmy with Craig Budley. After 90 minutes plus injury time, the score was still Scotland nil, Netherlands nil, and the Swedish referee had seen enough. 
As he blew his whistle, the roars of delight from the Tartan army would make any passers-by think that Scotland had won the game. The stubborn Scottish defence had done their job remarkably well, and after all four teams having played their first game in the group, it was wide open. As the handshakes were dished out and shirts exchanged, Scotland's thoughts immediately turned to the biggest game of the entire tournament in the eyes of many British football fans, a derby at Wembley against England. In the days and weeks leading up to this match, you couldn't escape the oldest international football derby in the world being played on the biggest stage on the continent. Not that this fixture wasn't hyped up enough already, but Scotland and England had not met since 1989 when England had won 2-0 in the Rouse Cup, with goals coming from Chris Waddle and Steve Bull. As England's John Barnes put it, no matter who's playing well, that's a unique match and Scotland want to turn us over. While Scotland drawing against the Netherlands had been considered a great start to the tournament by the Scottish press, their English counterparts were less than thrilled by England's failure to see off the Swiss in their opening game. Add to that, the debauchery involving a dentist's chair and copious amounts of alcohol during England's pre-tournament preparations meant the pressure really was on Terry Venables and his team to get a result against Scotland. With Scotland buoyed by their start and England up against it, surely something would have to give at Wembley. Saturday the 15th of June came around and unfortunately, the focus of the nation was taken away on the morning of the game by an IRA bomb which went off in Manchester's Arndale Centre, relatively close to Old Trafford, which was one of the host venues. Miraculously, despite 212 people being injured in the blast, there were no fatalities, and the games were able to continue as planned. Craig Brown changed his formation from a 4-3-3 that he had used against the Dutch to a 5-3-2 to combat the English attacking threat. Kevin Gallagher and Scott Booth dropped out of the starting eleven to be replaced by Tosh McKinley and John Spencer. England unsurprisingly put out a strong team with the likes of David Seaman, Gareth Southgate, Tony Adams, Alan Shearer, Steve McManaman and Paul Gascoigne all starting. There was a lot of debate around Gascoigne who at this point was a Rangers player and had enjoyed a good season under Walter Smith at Ibrox. Gascoigne, ever the joker, had been involved in the now infamous exploits in the Far East involving a dentist chair and had been panned by sections of the English media. But it would be foolish to write off one of England's most naturally gifted players in a generation. The Scots who played for Rangers knew this, and so did Craig Brown, who used Colin Hendry to mark him. If either team could get a winner here, it would open up the possibility of winning the group and qualifying for the quarter-finals. At 3pm, Pierluigi Pareto blew his whistle, and Gordon Dury kicked off in the glorious London sunshine. The first half of the game was a scrappy affair, with very little between the teams. But Scotland had the first attack of any real note when a long ball from Tom Boyd found Tosh McKinley in the middle of the park with acres of space to run into. McKinley crossed to the near side where Gary McAllister was waiting. McAllister passed back to the middle of the park where Stuart McCall played a quick 1-2 with Stuart McKimmy whose cross into the box deflected off Stuart Pearce 
and out for a corner. John Collins took the corner, which David Seaman just managed to get a touch on, as Colin Henry was waiting to put the ball back into the mixer. Colin Calderwood received Henry's pass, but with three white shirts around him, he was unable to turn, and the ball fell kindly for Paul Gascoigne, who gratefully took the ball across to the far wing, where we went out for a throw-in. England had survived their scare, and at half-time the teams went in level. England nil, Scotland nil. Scotland could be pleased with their efforts in the first half, but would have to step up a gear to try and break down England. Instead, it was Terry Venable's side who came out having up their game in the second half. England had a great chance to score after Gary Neville gave Steve McManaman the ball just inside their own half, and McManaman ran almost half the length of the pitch before attempting a shot from 20 yards out. His curling effort was high and wide, failing to trouble Andy Gorham in the Scots goal, but this was a warning of what was to come for Scotland. In the 53rd minute, Jamie Redknapp, who had replaced Stuart Pearce at half-time, played a pass to the near side that found McManaman again, who got to the edge of Scotland's box. Rather than play a cross inside, he played the ball wide to Gary Neville, who was waiting to cross the ball. The ball looked over the Scottish defence, and Alan Sheeran ran in to head the ball home, past the helpless Gorham. There had been much debate in England as to whether Shearer should have a big role in their side during this tournament, but this goal threw that debate completely out the window. The English crowd went wild, as they'd broken the deadlock, and it'd be a huge task for Scotland to try and get something from the game. England won, Scotland nil. Many a team would have crumbled after losing such a goal, but not Scotland. Having competed well in the first half, the task was now to get back into the game. And while England were now playing better than at the start of the game, they were by no means out of sight. Scotland won a throw-in in the 66th minute, which found John Collins on the near side, 10 yards from the byline. Collins invoked the spirit of Jimmy Johnson by using some intricate jinking to beat Paulins and release an inch-perfect cross for Gordon Jury. David Seaman scrambled to get to his far post as Jury sent in a perfect header towards his goal. And just when it looked as if the Arsenal keeper was beaten, he managed to make the save, and Jury couldn't believe his bad luck. Brown then decided it was time for a change up front, and replaced John Spencer with Ali McCoyce to freshen up the task force. As the clock ticked down, time was running out for Scotland, who had worked themselves back into the game, and the Tartan army in the stands had managed to find their voices while being surrounded by England's vocal fans. And with just 15 minutes remaining, Gary McAllister played a long ball from the middle of the park to Stuart McCall, who was running towards the far corner. With both Jury and McCoy to aim for in the box, McCall aimed for Jury. As Jury tried to make contact with the ball, he was sighed down by Tony Adams and the Italian referee Blue pointing to the spot. Penalty to Scotland. This was surely it. Scotland had worked hard to keep themselves within touching distance of their greatest rivals. And now this was a chance at redemption. England fans knew that if this went in, their players' heads might well go down, as the Tartan army would roll Scotland on in search of a winner. Scotland had many capable penalty takers on their side, and it was the captain Gary McAllister who took the ball and placed it on the spot. Seaman stood on his line, trying to psych out his opponent, as the referee blew to let McAllister go. The captain took a long run-up and blasted the ball hard towards the bottom left of the net. Seaman leapt and made the save, putting the ball behind for a corner kick. Instead of Scottish cheers, it was England who were celebrating, avoiding their rivals coming back into the game. As McAllister looked despondent, 
The television replay showed that the ball had moved slightly just before the Scotland captain struck the ball. Whether or not you believe the Israeli magician Yuri Geller, who claimed to have been in a helicopter above the stadium and willed the ball to move, it was a huge chance missed as the score stayed the same. England won, Scotland nil. If that wasn't bad enough for Scotland, things were just about to get even worse. After the resultant corner had been taken, Seaman launched a long goal kick to Terry Sheringham, who played a short pass to Darren Anderton. Anderton found Paul Gascoigne running into space just in front of the Scotland's box. And with only Colin Hendy between Gascoigne and Gorham in the Scotland goal, the Geordie playmaker chipped the ball mischievously over Hendry before shooting with his right foot. Andy Gorham had no chance as the ball hit the back of the net and the white shirts on and off the park broke into celebrations. Gascoigne had been kept relatively quiet until this point, but now he was the man of the moment. As Gascoigne lay down in the park and his teammates got water flasks to emulate his dentistry scenes from Hong Kong, the Scotland team could only wonder at what just happened. Within almost a minute of having a chance at redemption, victory had been cruelly snatched away from them, and there'd be no way back now. England 2, Scotland 0. And with just over 10 minutes to go, the game was effectively over. At full time, England had all but sealed their qualification for the quarterfinals and Scotland could only rue their luck once again. As Badil, Skinner and the Lightning Seed song Three Lions blared out from the English supporters, the Tartar army started leaving to drown their sorrows. Years later, Craig Brown was speaking on the phone with Gary McAllister and Brown summed up his feelings when he told the Press and Journal in 2020 I was talking to Gary on the phone and he said, if I'd scored that penalty, we'd definitely have won the game. I agreed with him. I'm sure if he'd scored, it wouldn't have been a draw. It would have been a victory. Despite Gascoigne getting the attention, it was David Seaman who won the Man of the Match award for his crucial saves that had kept England in the game. The cultural significance of this game was felt for years throughout the country, even being referenced by the Falkirk band Arab Strap, who had a lyric from their song, The First Big Weekend, which went, We had intended to watch the football in the afternoon, but we'd passed out by then and slept right through it, awaking to find that England had won 2-0. Although Scotland had been unlucky to come away without as much as a point, they could still qualify for the quarter-finals, but their fate was now out of their hands. A win in the next game against the Swiss might do the job, but they would need to hope that England could win by a healthy margin against the Netherlands. It could end up coming down to goal difference as the Dutch had beaten Switzerland 2-0, and the Swiss still had a remote chance of qualifying if they could beat Scotland by a healthy margin and hope that England could win big. After a few days of training, it was back to Villa Park for Scotland on the 18th of June to play Switzerland. For this game, Craig Brown once again changed this formation to a 4-4-2, as Craig Burley replaced Stuart McKimmy and Ali McCoist was picked ahead of John Spencer. The Swiss may not have had many household names from a British perspective, but still had a capable team that could hurt teams given the opportunity. As ITV's commentator remarked while the teams emerged onto the park, this must be a unique occasion in the history of Scottish football. 
the first time the Tartan army is praying for an English victory. At 7.30pm, Vashlav Krondo, the Czech referee, blew his whistle and the Tartan army were in good voice backing the Tartan-clad team. Scotland's first big chance in the game came after five minutes from a corner taken by John Collins, as Gordon Jury's outstretched leg sent the ball in the direction of the Swiss goal. Ali McCoyce then directed the ball towards the net, but the ball was saved on the line by the Swiss keeper Marco Pascolo and off the bar to safety. While there were shouts from the Scots that the ball had crossed the line, the Czech officials weren't interested, and the score stayed level. The crowd were up for it, and it looked like Brown's team were too. Soon the Scots were on the move again, as McAllister found Jury on the wing. Jury opted to pass the ball back to Tosh McKinley, who crossed in perfectly for the ball to then be directed into the path of Ali McCoyst. McCoyst, just inside the six-yard box, could only shoot straight at the keeper. Within the first ten minutes of the game, Scotland could have been 2-0 up, and there could have been echoes of the last game in Euro 92 against the Russians. But no joy yet. Scotland came attacking once again through Ali McCoyst, who skipped past the Swiss midfield and played a pass to McKinley, who crossed over towards Craig Budley. Budley found himself in plenty of space, but he decided to go for the first-time effort rather than take a touch to control the ball. The shot went straight into Rose Ed of the stand, and Brown telling the media that Scotland would take a controlled approach to the early stages of the game seemed to have been a ruse to lull the Swiss into a false sense of security. Scotland's good pressure was starting to pay off, and an interception from McCoyce then found McAllister. He held the ball up, which allowed McCoyce to run in behind him to a great shooting position. McAllister played the ball sideways to McCoyce, who unleashed one of his trademark shots, and there was nothing the Swiss goalie could do about it. A perfect shot from Ali McCoyce had hit the back of the net, and Villa Park went absolutely wild with delight. Craig Brown and his assistant Alec Miller were almost on the park celebrating, as after 36 minutes, Scotland had finally got the goal they so badly craved. Scotland won, Switzerland nil, and with England leading the Dutch 1-0, it looked as though qualification might be on. At half-time, it was Scotland 1, Switzerland 0, and down at Wembley, it was England 1, Netherlands 0. If Scotland could keep it tight in the back and get another, in addition to England scoring more without conceding, then it looked as if Scotland would be able to claw their way to second place by virtue of goal difference or goals scored. After half-time, Switzerland had a great chance to get things level, as Ivan Quentin played in a cross to Christophe Bonvan, but Bonvan could only shoot wide of Gorham's goal. As Switzerland came forward again with another chance that Gorham saved easily, a huge roar went up from the stands as the Tartan army found out that England had scored again. The players and fans alike must have been daring to dream, as it looked like Scotland would finally break the curse of failing to get out of the group stages. England found themselves going on a scoring spree and were 4-0 up after 62 minutes. It really was unbelievable stuff, as Craig Brown knew that a 1-0 win would do for Scotland. He and his side wanted more though, 
and John Collins could have been the scorer of that elusive second goal, but instead, his effort went over the bar into the whole tent. With England still 4-0 up, Scotland almost found themselves level again when Turkilmaz of Switzerland headed what looked like it was going to be a certain goal towards the Scottish net, but Andy Gorham was the hero yet again as he got up to make a crucial save. Had that gone in, things would have looked grim for Scotland. As it turned out, they were about to get desperate, as news came in from Wembley that Patrick Cloyvert had scored against England, leaving their score at 4-1. 4-0 would have sent Scotland through, but 4-1 left Scotland level on goal difference with the Dutch, going out on goals scored. It was time for one last big push to get another, as Brown took off Ali McCoyst for John Spencer with six minutes to go. As the time was running out, the Tartan army desperately willed on their heroes in dark blue to do the unthinkable. Stuart McCall found himself in space on the far wing and played a long cross towards Colin Hendry, who headed the ball back in the hope that Craig Burley would be able to beat the keeper. As the two leapt up for the ball, the Swiss goalie was able to catch the ball and launch a Swiss counter-attack. Despite Scotland having committed so many men forward to find another goal, the Swiss attack was stopped and the Scottish defence launched the ball forward, hoping for just one more shot at the Swiss goal. The Czech officials had seen enough though and blew for full time. Scotland had won 1-0 against Switzerland, but Patrick Cloyvert had ruined the party as the Dutch qualified alongside England. Alas, the bookies had guessed correctly that Scotland would be going home quickly despite Ian St John saying, this is the best Scottish performance that I have seen for many, many years. Had even one of Scotland's early chances in the first 15 minutes gone in, Villa Park would have turned into the scene of the biggest party in the country, but instead the players could only collapse on the pitch and wonder what might have been. Had they qualified ahead of the Dutch, Scotland would have been playing against France, and the Dutch ended up losing 5-4 on penalties to the French after a goalless draw. France were a side who many viewed as potential trophy winners in this tournament, but they fell to a defeat on penalties against the Czech Republic after another goalless draw in the semi-final. Back home, Scotland were welcomed by their fans, who simply hoped that there would be no repeat of 1966 for England. England defeated Spain on penalties after a goalless draw to set up a tie against Germany, where England lost 6-5 on penalties after a 1-1 draw. The Germans went on to win the final against the Czechs by virtue of the golden goal rule, whereby if a match went to extra time, the game would be won by the first team to score a goal. In an ironic twist, England's tournament song Three Lions became a huge hit in Germany due to their success in bringing the trophy home. Ultimately, Craig Brown had been successful in his first task, which was to take Scotland south to the Euros in 1996, and while it had ended up as yet another case study in glorious failure, Scotland had a national team that was worth shouting about again. The next objective was also fairly close to home as the World Cup of 1998 was to be held in France. An easy enough trip for the Tartan army to be able to go on. With that in mind, 
Craig Brown turned his attention to making sure that Scotland would be at the biggest party in the world in two years' time. At the start of the podcast, we asked you which player was the first to win 50 caps for the Scotland men's national team. The answer is George Young. Young made a total of 54 appearances for Scotland, making his debut as a substitute against Switzerland in 1946 when he replaced Billy Campbell of Morton. As substitutes were not commonplace at the time, this was the one and only time when Young was used as a substitute. Of his 54 appearances, Young was captain 48 times and played in 34 consecutive international games between 1948 and 1953. The Rangers captain also made 22 appearances for the Scottish League and was nicknamed Corky due to his habit of always carrying a lucky champagne cork in his pocket. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Scottish Football Citizen. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And join us again next week when we'll be looking back at more of the best of Scottish football from the past. If you'd like an extra football fix in your inbox every Tuesday, you can subscribe to Football Memories Scotland's weekly newsletter, The Football Special, and receive an email full of excellent pictures and stories from days gone by. To find out more, email lindsay at lindsay.hamilton at scottishfootballmuseum.org.uk The Scottish Football Citizen is written, edited and produced by Andy Kerr for Football Memories Scotland in association with Alzheimer Scotland and the Scottish Football Museum. Additional contributions from Robert Harvey, Jim Orr, Lindsay Hamilton and Richard McBrearty. Additional material from BBC Sport Scotland, ITV Sport, The Press and Journal, STV Sport, iNews, The Associated Press, 442 Magazine and The First Big Weekend by Arab Snap, released by Chemical Underground Records. <laughs>